You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Well, good morning, Real Life family, all those who are here in person and those attending online. As Adam said, my name is Tyler Brooks. I'm a volunteer here. I've been attending church for seven years now. Uh, As he mentioned, me and my beautiful wife, Alex, facilitate a young adult's life group. And today I have the joy of continuing, continuing with you all in our Armor of God series. And Adam introduced us to this series two weeks ago, and he talked about the importance of the belt of truth. And then last week, we had a beautiful, heartfelt message from Greg on the breastplate of righteousness. And this morning, I'm excited to talk to you about the third piece of armor that Paul tells us that we are to always have on. And Paul will introduce us to this piece of armor in Ephesians 6.15. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now I know what you're probably thinking. Where's the armor? Well, what Paul was actually referring to here was the sandals that Roman soldiers would wear. And this is important because multiple times in Ephesians, Paul tells us to stand firm. Matter of fact, he goes as far as to tell us that once we have done everything that we can do to stand firm, that we should just keep standing firm. And these sandals called the caligae are quite literally what helped a Roman soldier to do just that, to stand firm in battle. And what made these sandals special are actually what's found here on the soles. These little lugs or cleats, which are actually just nails that they hammered through the bottom of the sole and clipped short, these studs are what provided traction and support to a Roman soldier. Now I know what you're probably still thinking. Where's the armor? Well, these sandals weren't built for protection. They were built for function. And every Roman soldier knew that if they lost their foot in battle and fell, it wouldn't matter how great the rest of their armor is. They'd be killed. So these sandals, guys, are very important. So let's go back to Ephesians 6.15 here. And with your feet fitted, talking about the sandals, the caligae, with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So Paul is linking these sandals to the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And I do want to take a moment and focus on this word readiness. You'll notice a lot of translations use the word preparation. And it's not preparation in that we are preparing for something. Remember, these sandals are something we're to always have on. The use of preparation there is kind of past tense, meaning that we already have prepared, and now our feet are fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So Paul is saying, take these sandals, take these shoes, and put on the gospel of peace. And the gospel of peace is the good news of the reconciliation and salvation that is available to all humanity through Jesus Christ. And Paul is telling both Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus to put this on and stand firm in this identity. And this is important because the main thing Paul was writing to the Ephesians to address was that the Gentiles were being made to feel like second-class citizens. So Paul was letting them know, both Jew and Gentile, what it meant to be in Christ and also to establish that their position in Christ was not based on their own abilities or their own worthiness. And one of the most popular scriptures from Ephesians actually highlights this. It's Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no man can boast. So what Ephesians 2.8.9 is talking about here is where does our salvation lie? 
Does it lie in something that we do? Or does it lie in something that God has done for us and by faith we come into relationship with? Well, the Bible would tell us it's the latter, that it's something God has done for us and that Jesus' victory on the cross and the empty tomb reconciled us back to God. And when we believe in Jesus, we now take on his identity. So Paul was helping the Jews and Gentiles to understand that their identity is first and foremost in Jesus Christ and to put on this belt of truth, to put on this breastplate of righteousness and to stand firm in this new identity we share. Paul was making it clear that through Jesus, we are all first-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Now, as I was preparing for this message uh, somebody actually asked me, they go, is there ever a time you yourself felt like a second-class citizen? It was a good question. I, I thought about it for like 20 or 30 seconds, and he's like, you know, I, I can't think of any time that I felt like a, a second-class citizen, and all of a sudden, it hit me. I was just flooded with these emotions. And a little backstory: I grew up in a small town of Orofino, Idaho, and at the age of 11, I made the decision that I wanted to be a football player. I wanted to play collegiate football. I wanted to play in the NFL. So my life became about playing football. Well, I would learn the hard way my senior year that it's not easy to get recruited from a small town in North Idaho. Um, I did, however, get the opportunity to walk on at my preferred university here at the University of Idaho. Uh, My expectations of what it would be like to be a walk-on did not match the realities of what it was like to be a walk-on. It was a difficult road. I showed up to fall camp with big dreams of playing. We were playing USC the first game. Showed up dreaming I was going to be in the game. Quickly found out that the teams were already formed, um, that I would be on scout team. And uh, it wasn't necessarily anything that the the players did or the coaches did, but there certainly was a separation between the walk-ons and the scholarship athletes. And part of that was because there's a high turnover rate with walk-ons. There was 23 that entered with me in my class, and of the 23, only three of us made it to the, our senior graduating year. And uh, I remember halfway through season, I was struggling. I'd watch as my friends and teammates would travel to Hawaii and New Mexico State, and I would watch them from my apartment here in Moscow, asking myself, am I really part of this team? Then the home games would come around, be excited to go out on the field, and I'd wear the jersey with no pads, some shorts, wave a towel on the sideline, and everybody in the stands could tell that, well, maybe he's on the team. Maybe he is, but maybe he's a second-class citizen. He's not a starter. And so I started to kind of develop these preconceived notions about myself, my worthiness. I began to, uh, I actually contemplated transferring Uh, going to a different school where I'd feel like I was a first-class citizen, where I'd feel like I was contributing to the team. Um, We got through that first year, and uh, I got a call early on a Saturday morning. It was a police officer. He said, hi, is this Tyler Brooks? I go, yes, it is. He goes, this is Officer Rouse of the Idaho State Police. He goes, your mother's been in a head-on collision on Highway 11. Um, She's got some broken bones in her feet. She's coherent. She's doing fine. 
um, but you should go down to Lewiston to meet her. So I got up that I got up that morning and not thinking anything of it, and I drove down to Lewiston. I walk into the emergency room. I walk up to the receptionist and I say, "Hi, my name's Tyler Brooks. My mom was in a car accident." And she looks at me, and her face turns ghost white. She doesn't say anything, and she gets up and she grabs me, and she starts just leading me into this back room. And I go blowing in through this door, and I come right in face. There's probably ten or twelve nurses and doctors, and in front of me is my mom. Laying on a bed, she's talking, she looks at me, she does not notice me. The left side of her head is so, it swelled up so big I didn't know a head could swell that big. Her legs weren't broken, her feet were severed. And I listened as, sorry my mom's here this morning. I listened as one of the nurses told the doctors that they didn't have the capability to stabilize and care for my mother at Lewiston. They did not have the ability to take her by ambulance to Spokane. To be exact, he said, we can't hold that much blood on the ambulance. I was in there for minutes before somebody realized that I was the odd man out and they led me out of that room I don't remember what happened after that the next memory I have was meeting my dad in a parking lot in Spokane where we then would drive over to Sacred Heart as we got settled in I realized I should probably let my coach know that I won't be around for a while. I'd be missing some school and missing some workouts, missing practice. So I called up my position coach and I said, hey, my mom's been in an accident. Just letting you guys know I probably won't be around a bit. And I wasn't much of a contributor at this point. I was still contemplating transferring. And I remember thinking it really wasn't that big of a deal that I wouldn't I wouldn't be missed. I wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't negatively impact the team if I took a couple weeks off. And uh, late that night, when me and my dad were in the waiting room, the, uh, the door opens up, and it's after visitor hours. And in comes walking... Rob Akey, the head football coach for the Idaho Vandals. My head football coach. Guys, I had maybe had three or four conversations with this man in my career up to this point. It was late at night. It was probably 11 or midnight. This man would be in the office at 5. But he showed up. And he let me know that I was on the team, that I was a vandal, and I was a first-class citizen. I'd wake up the next day. I drove back down to Moscow. 
I needed a shower and get some clothes and grab my, my school stuff for, for the weeks that I'd be missing. And I walked into my apartment and I wasn't there for five minutes when the front door sounded like it got kicked in. And I turn around and here comes a man by the name of Shiloh Kao. I don't know if any of you remember that name, but Shiloh Kao was the he was the business. When you thought of Vandal football, you, you thought of Shiloh Kao. Not only was he a phenomenal man, he was a phenomenal athlete. He would go on to play in the NFL, where he won a Super Bowl ring with the Denver Broncos. He would then later go on to coach at Alabama with Urban Meyer, where he won a national championship ring. This was the guy. I didn't really know Shiloh at the time, but he came busting through the door. Tears streaming down his face, and behind him, 10 to 12, 15 of my teammates. And he grabbed me, and we cried together, and he prayed for me and my mom. They all prayed for me and my mom. That was my letter from Paul. They let me know that I was a first-class citizen, and my value wasn't based on my abilities or my worthiness. It wasn't based on what I contributed on a Saturday. I was more I was more than a number. I was part of the team. And you know, those guys rallied around me at a very vulnerable time in my life. My brothers picked me up. They said, put these on. They told me to stand firm and they held me up when I was struggling to hold myself up. And because they helped me to stand firm, I did stand firm. In 2009, I started in and contributed towards the 2009 Idaho Vandals Humanitarian Bull Victory. I would go on to earn a scholarship in my senior year, had the absolute honor of being voted team captain by my fellow teammates. Because I had a community that rallied around me and wouldn't let me quit. And I stand up here on stage now, 12, 15 years later. You know, it wasn't the ring certainly wasn't the scholarship. It wasn't the title. It was the friends and the people that I met. And I have a core group of friends from football. These guys are my brothers. I love them dearly. And you know, the ring, it's cool. It sits in a safe. My brothers, they stay in my heart. It's so important, guys, to know what it means for us to be on Team Jesus. And Paul knew that we must know who we are in Jesus if we're to put these shoes on and stand firm. So I do want to spend a little bit of time this morning talking about our identity in Jesus. 
But before I do that, I want to talk about the identity of Jesus. And to do that, I want to go to Matthew 16. But first, a little backstory. By Matthew 16, Jesus has already started his ministry. He's already chosen disciples. He's already done signs, wonders, miracles, healings. But he's still in stealth mode. The people he's interacting with, he's telling, say, hey, don't, don't share what I've done. Don't tell people who I am. Matthew 16 tells us that Jesus is walking through the area of Caesarea Philippi. And that he asks his disciples, what are these rumors? What do these people say to me? More specifically, who do they say that the Son of Man is? And his disciples responded saying, well, some call you John the Baptist. Others say that you are Elijah or another great prophet. And that's where I want to pick up here in Matthew 16. Jesus asked them, he said to them, but who do you yourselves say that I am? Simon Peter answered saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Now, who is he? Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, and he is the son of the living God. Now, something very interesting happens here. In verse 18, Jesus gives Peter a new name. And this is significant in Jewish culture. If you got a new name, you now got a new identity. And the cool thing is, is Jesus gave Simon the name Peter. And Peter means rock. And then Jesus calls him rock and then goes on to say, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, Peter plays a significant role in the start and the expansion of the early church and the expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is no doubt Jesus was being very intentful when he gave Peter this name, saying, hey, look, he was foreshadowing what was to come, that I will build my church on and through you, Peter. But I think there's something bigger at play here. I think Jesus is pointing to something that's bigger than Peter himself. And I'd like to show you. In verse 17, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Reveal what? What is this? Reveal that I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. He says, no, that was a revelation from my Father in heaven. Peter, this revelation of myself, my identity, the Messiah, was a revelation from God. And I think in verse 18, when Jesus says, and on this rock, I will build my church. I think he's pointing right back up to verse 17 and saying, on this rock, on this revelation of who I am, I will build my church, Peter, because it is this revelation of who I am. My identity is the Messiah. It is this identity, this revelation in the hearts and minds of men and women that bring them to a position of accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and believing in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, Paul tells us to take these sandals of the gospel of peace and put them on our feet. Again, the gospel of peace is the good news of the reconciliation and salvation that is available to all of humanity through Jesus. Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the reconciliation. Jesus is the salvation. Jesus is the gospel of peace. 
It's this revelation of who Jesus is, his identity. Guys, it's paramount that we understand this. If we do not get that right, if we misunderstand or take for granted who Jesus is, we will mistake and take for granted what it means for us to be his. The first and foremost thing that we as Christians put on our feet and stand firm in is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and the Son of the living God. All right, now that we've established who he is, his identity, I I briefly want to talk about what it means for us to be in Christ. Now, Paul, again, would go on to write the first three chapters of Ephesians to establish our identity in Christ. Now, I don't think that we specifically have the same issue today that the Ephesians were dealing with, but I do believe it's very important that we understand and believe that we are what Jesus says we are. So with that, I highly encourage you all to read the first three chapters of Ephesians. And uh, I have condensed that list for you here today. This is just a couple of the identities you'll find in the first three chapters. We are blessed, chosen, adopted, redeemed, Sealed with the Holy Spirit. Loved. Saved through grace. You guys are his workmanship. You are fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household. And my favorite, Ephesians 3, 6. We are fellow heirs and partakers of the promise of Jesus Christ. Guys, it's a promise. I think one of my favorite, though, it's 1 John four seventeen. I think it does the best to just really clearly and concisely tell us just exactly what we are. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. As Jesus is, so are we in this world. Like, that's how God views us now. He no longer sees our sin in our imperfections, He sees the perfection of his own son. And that's convenient for us because that means we are no longer graded or judged by our report card. We're judged by his. And he got straight A's. We go back to that list, move forward. Guys, Jesus, Jesus went to the cross so that you could be this. He sacrificed so that you could be what he tells you that you are. If we don't consider ourselves the same as what Jesus does, if we consider ourselves less than what Jesus does, we rob him of the full reward of his sacrifice. As this is our identity in Christ, this is who you are, This is what Jesus says you are. Now, I want to go back to the sandals and and to the football analogy. You know, there's something interesting in football. Both offense and defense wear cleats. The defense uses them to dig in, to stand firm, to repulse the attacks of the enemy. The offense uses their cleats to generate speed, power, force, to take ground from the enemy. 
Guys, you see these sandals here? They're both offensive and defensive. Because with this gospel of peace that we stand in is an expectation that we share it. Now, I don't want that to sound like a burden because with, with this revelation of who Jesus Christ is comes an understanding of the value of what he has given us. And when we understand that value, guys, it's, it's the good news. When we understand that, we, why wouldn't we want to share it? And oftentimes I think we, we kind of think of sharing as preaching or waiting for the right opportunity to talk to somebody about Jesus. And those are certainly parts of it, guys. But remember, these shoes, these sandals that we are to always have on represent a lifestyle. And God told us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said that you are the light of the world. And he said, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. No, they put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Therefore, let your light shine before others in such a way that they see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Live a lifestyle in such a way that people don't have to ask who you serve. They know. And they give your Father glory in heaven. And your shining light might be taking someone out for coffee. It may be inviting them to your life group. Calling up that old friend that you've been thinking about for the last week but you just won't call. It could be offering or extending forgiveness. It's a lifestyle, guys. I do want to talk and finish off on the importance of these sandals as defense. So one of the reasons we are given this armor is because there is an expectation of conflict. One of the things I want to stress about this armor of God is that while the armor was made for the individual, it was designed to function in community. You see, the strength of the Roman armies lied in the coordination and cohesion of its legions. And before battle, the Roman soldiers would condense down and they would come together. So right before conflict, the Roman soldiers would come together and they would overlap their shields so that your shield was protecting the man to your left. And the man on the front line would know that he had a brother to his right, a brother to his left, and a whole legion of men behind him. And that he could stand firm knowing that he was supported and he could take the weapons that he'd been given and fight the enemy head on. You see, this armor was not made for solo combat. The shield is too big and heavy, and the sword was too short. And guys, I don't care how, how, good, how great a cleat you have or how big you are. It is hard to stand firm when you're being shoved from all sides. 
Community is important. God said it wasn't good for man to be alone. He knew that we would need each other. Hold each other up to remind each other whose we are. And we are first class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Guys, I can't stress enough the importance of community. And I just have to, uh, I have to give a little testimony this morning. This comes with a, he- a heavy heart. Did you, know, did you know that we're a disciple-making church? And I've heard on good authority that only 3% of all churches in America identify as disciple-making churches. Did you guys notice this morning that I told you that I am a volunteer? I showed up here seven years ago, coming off a pretty traumatic event in my life. I had social anxiety, severely. I couldn't hold a conversation with anybody, even if I wanted to. And I promise you, I certainly did not want to. But I showed up and I was absorbed by this community Josh took me under his wing and took me through an Experiencing God workbook. And I think that Josh could tell that I didn't like to talk, and I could certainly tell that he liked to talk. <laughs> but the more that he talked, the more the walls around my heart started to come down. And then I was invited by Brian to help cook for men's breakfast. And for the first time since football, I was surrounded by a community of men, of godly men, who talked to me, who pulled things out of me, who saw things in me that I could not see in myself, that encouraged me to focus on my strengths and to pursue after the heart of God. The greatest disciple maker that I've ever met in my life is Jesus Christ. The second greatest disciple maker that I've ever met in my life is your lead servant, Josh Gray. We hear Josh say all the time that church is not a building, and he's right, it's not. We, we are the church. But God has blessed us with a building. And I've heard Josh say multiple times that This building is a place to play, and it certainly is, but it's more than that. It's a place to grow. So if you guys want a place to play, you want a place to grow, you're looking for community, you need help standing firm against the fiery arrows of the enemy, or you're wanting to get in community and take ground back from the enemy, guys, I invite you in. There are plenty of places to play within this building. Safety team, greeters, ushers, child care ministry. If you're needing to be poured into, Thursday night restoration night, we have a class for you. We have a me and three for you. If you're not in a life group, I encourage you to find one. It's these small groups where we band together and we come together before the conflict and overlap our shields. I cannot 
stress the importance of that. And with that, guys, I would, as a community, I would like to move towards communion. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember him. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. Let's remember him. Oh, Heavenly Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we thank you. We thank you that we are what you said we are. We are first-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Lord, my prayer is that you would help us to put these sandals on and stand firm in who you are and who we are in you. Lord, I thank you for the people in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.